Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the rising political crisis in Iran, armchair generals, and who we should listen to at times like this, with Nikki Eggers, Managing Director in Investment Solutions, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. Welcome to this week's Word on the Street. We're one week into the new year and so far 2020 hasn't been excitement free. I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, and Rob Smith, our Head of Behavioural Finance, which Rob, I think may require some defining. So if you don't mind when I get to you in a minute, please get ready to do so. Sure. So today we're not going to talk about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's uh, surprise announcement. Um, Disappointing. Yeah, I feel shame. quite authoritative on that subject. But Do you? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> see if you can weave it in. Um, but, but rather Iran and the US. Um, the proliferation of um, armchair generals and how perilous this is for investors who plan their investment strategy around the perceived risks and opportunities. So we've had this pretty turbulent start to uh, the year in geopolitics, but with recent events sparking some fears that, you know, could this proliferate into a major armed conflict between the US and Iran? For a little while, we've seen bond markets retrace some of their recent losses um, as investors seek shelter yet again. Stock markets have obviously gone the other way, although they've now bounced back a bit. Oil prices have done the opposite. Will does that about sum it up? I think that's about right, Nikki. Um, it's certainly been a bit choppy, um, but so far I'd characterise it as more kind of sound and fury rather than anything um, anything, uh, anything more substantial uh, signifying. It doesn't really signify much so far for markets, I would argue. I guess the interesting point here is about expertise. In these situations, we don't have an Iran specialist on hand. So who do we go to? How do we decide what to do about our investment positioning? It surely is important. We have to do something, don't we? Yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think this is the real point. I think um, uh, this could be maybe characterized as more of a male trait. Um, but events like this always seem to kind of jumpstart. You know, we mentioned these armchair generals. They seem to jumpstart the legion of armchair generals and amateur kind of geopolitical soothsayers in our industry. Suddenly, everybody is an expert. Um, and, you know, media is suddenly kind of bloated with commentators spewing kind of authoritative pronouncements on what comes next for the regions. And these pronouncements are regularly kind of sprinkled with, um, you know, borrowed intelligence uh, jargon for legitimacy. So people who hadn't heard uh, of the Quds force two weeks ago um, are now experts in Quds succession planning. Um, so the answer to your question is there is an awful lot of noise, as is traditional. Um, there are quite a few good independent think tanks that are worth having a look at. If you you are interested in could succession planning um you are quite a small uh, part of society if you are um but if you are you, you probably want to have a look um you know um brookings is good for instance uh the center for strategic and international studies um is also worth a look carnegie institute uh, you know so lots of think places you can go for kind of reasonably reliable information but from an investment perspective if you can't see an edge for yourself i.e you think you know better than anyone else what the next step is and remember often in these situations, the main protagonists themselves probably don't know um, that, um, then you are really reliant on the diversification across assets and geographies um, that we um, painstakingly ensure in all of our kind of multi-asset class funds and, and portfolios. 
So I guess this is where Rob comes in. As mentioned before, Rob, you're our head of behavioural finance and you also have some responsibility for our impact, environmental, social and governance ESG. Yep. Did I get that right? Yep, that's right. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful um, philosophy as well. Can you briefly explain to the listeners what on earth that's all about? <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. So, yeah, so in the behavioural finance team here at Barclays, what we do is we think about how investors make decisions, what kind of influences their behaviour, um, and how we can essentially help them get around some of the common pitfalls that we see. And when it comes to sort of sustainable investing and thinking about, you know, the impact that people have with their investments, then, you know, we like to try and understand, you know, what are the motivations that that clients have in order to kind of do this. Now, it's a part of the industry that's kind of new and developing, but Barclays, we are, we like to think we are at least, you know, to some extent leading in this area. And, you know, we already have our multi-impact kind of growth fund, which is, you know, something that is, is sort of um, unique to us at the moment and you know so I'm just looking at how do we take this forward and how do we really embed it as part of our investment philosophy. Fabulous thank you. So I saw that you guys have written about the good judgment project versus the CIA. I know that's a bit of an oversimplification but this was quite a fascinating contest which started off in 2011. In short my understanding is the US intelligence community launched a massive competition to try to identify cutting edge methods to forecast geopolitical events which frankly Will has just said is unachievable but we'll <laughs> we'll see if if the outcome is the same. <laughs> but in addition to teams from across the US intelligence community a project led by two US university academics who study human judgment the good judgment project was invited to also take part. After four years and over a million individual forecasts, it was the Good Judgment Project, not those analysts with access to masses of classified data who came out persistently and substantially on top. Is that correct, Rob? And what do we learn from this? Well, I think you've hit the nail pretty much on the head there with your description. So I think the interesting thing that this experience and this this project kind of tells us is, is a couple of pieces. Firstly is that it, to some extent, dispels the myth around kind of experts and kind of not necessarily who we should trust but who really is the best at making trying to make these judgments about the future so naturally you would assume that the US intelligence agency who have as you say access to classified information and probably the best technology in order to try and make good judgments about what's happening in the kind of geopolitical future should outperform anyone else they're hiring you know the best people in theory who have the most kind of expertise in that area however you know the the good judgment project which brought together you know a host of people who were taking part voluntarily and bringing trying to educate those people in how to make better forecasts bring them together and um by doing so, trying to improve the accuracy of, of a single forecast they could give. And the results show that actually, although many of these individual forecasters may not share, you know, the label of expert, as you would uh, suppose would be the case for, a, for an intelligence analyst, they actually managed to kind of outperform. So to some extent, it, it, it supports the, the, the critic that the the critique that Will has been um, talking about around experts and can we trust them. But at the same time, it shines a light on the fact that actually there is quite a bit of science as well as art involved in forecasting the future. And by you know looking at some of these big studies and, and the work that some of the leading academics have been doing, 
we can try and kind of harness some of those insights and see, okay, what, how is it that they're able to, you know, time and time again, produce better forecasts than people who we would think should be reliable in this area. So I don't think it completely, you know, blows out the water that we, you know, we should completely forget any expertise is, is worth having. And we should all just, you know, walk around with the, with zero expectations about the future. What it tells us is that, you know, is there something extra we can learn? And how can we try and apply that to our own, you know, thinking and our, and our in-house investment process to try and, you know, be open and honest about what we know whilst also gaining kind of the best insight. So experts are fallible. We're all human, right? Um, but at least, you know, what, what, what you're saying there is that that expertise or what we can learn from them won't necessarily always come from the, you know, the labelled experts. Um, we need to look more broadly um, and look at our techniques for decision making and, and forecasting. Exactly. And there's the really interesting thing about, dare I use the word, competence is there's, there's this little-known effect called the, the um, I'm trying to think of it now, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is basically the manifestation of, of many underlying biases, including overconfidence being the major one, where the more incompetent we are in a subject, the less we realise our own incompetence. Mm-hmm. So actually... <laughs> those who it is incredibly dangerous (laughs) and therefore actually the people who are more competent in a field tend to be the ones who realize that they don't know as much of that about that field as as is to know and therefore are possibly or probably less confident now we know that there's a correlation between the confidence someone has and the loudness of the voice and therefore the loudness of the voice and and how easily it's spread across the kind of news media so you, you know you can do the maths and work out that you know those out there with the most confidence I'd say more than half of them probably suffer from from this effect. There's that Yates quote, isn't there? The worst are full of passionate intensity, the best lack all conviction. I'm sure I've got it wrong, but it's something like something that. Like that. the same thing. And what about us as as consumers of expertise and, and a wide range of expertise? How how do we measure up collectively as evaluators of, of all of that information that we try so hard to, to garner? So it's an interesting question. And the reality is, you know, even if there is such thing as expertise as we, you know, we talk about, but we, we, can't, we can't possibly be the experts on every subject that we expect to come in contact with as, as consumers. And therefore, you know, we're going to need to look at places to, to, to get our information. Now, not having knowledge makes us slightly uneasy, so it's much more comfortable for us to, to, to have certainty and to have a view and to take a view. So it, quite often we look to, let's say, experts, those with loud voices, or more often than not, you know, people who are close to us in society, so family, friends, who have that confidence, have that view, to then sort of transport to our own view, because then, then we have confidence that we have something to sort of believe in, something to, to, to hang our, um, our coats on, if you like. And so typically, a lot of, you know, how good we are as evaluators will depend on the sort of people we surround ourselves with. Now, the reality is, in today's world, with the kind of social media that we have and the way that that's quite often pruned so that we're only hearing voices that tend to reinforce views that we already have it means that there's not much challenge to the views that we hold so we're just confirming the same things that that we're reading and we're thinking over and over again and whilst you know this might provide 
comfort for us because we don't have to do too much hard work and too much thinking. The reality is that it leads us to very kind of narrow views of the world and we don't have enough check and challenge on whether those opinions that we're kind of taking as our own are actually valid or not. So what, what, I'm, what I'm taking from what you're saying is a better way of, of um, absorbing information would be to seek out people with the opposite view and, and, and try to take that on board. Exactly, and especially from an investment point of view, when we're thinking, and, and within the team here, when we're thinking about ideas, you know, part of our process is to make sure that you know, we force ourselves to look at the opposite of, of that idea and take that viewpoint and say, look, what are the challenges that we could put forward for this idea? which means that you know we can't get around and 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 only look for those ideas that confirm the 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 underlying kind of insight we have to try to avoid the echo chamber exactly okay so um will i know you're quite obsessed i've i've been an avid listener of word on the street um and and i've heard you refer to it a lot around the way that news is delivered to us in the context of all that rob's just mentioned the behavioral considerations and observations Surely this creates quite a dangerous cocktail, this sort of 24-7, the, the, the kind of the bias that's built into what's um, exposed to us that uh, Rob's just mentioned. What are, your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, Rob um, sort of stole my point and made it much more eloquently. So what I'm going to do is repeat <laughs> it, but much more boringly. But there was, uh, interestingly... Um, that there was to, to Rob's exact point it, it wasn't always like this and I think this is the point there was, there was a really interesting study I saw the other day which was um, talking about the way that media um, has evolved over the last several decades in the US the UK and the developed world if you think back you know 30 40 years ago you really only had a handful of channels um, and if you think about programming if you just think about TV alone think about programming with these channels what it means is that the programs that are aired on these channels tend to have to be broader in scope or broader in appeal. And so you get many more catch-all types of programs. Now, as your TV channels proliferate, what this has facilitated is much more specific, targeted TV, news, media, exactly to Rob's point. Now, social media has only accelerated that trend. uh, And we've got this kind of echo chamber um, story, which is really interesting because it just it makes us it makes us worse investors. And and Rob's point is exactly right. So on the TAA, the tactical asset allocation committee, um, where where we decide kind of the tweaks that we make to the overall portfolios, when um, everybody is forced to make the opposite case, make an argument, actually make a whole, do a full presentation to the case that they don't agree with to really force that kind of behavioral point. And Rob and his team act as kind of behavioral police uh, for us. They sort of check us and say, no, Hobbs, you're speaking too much and you are not speaking enough and so on and so on and so on. And, and these kind of things to ensure that we, um, we, um, we do um, exactly, um, exactly that. It also, if you think about it, just leads to an overconfidence in your worldview. That's the real problem. And overconfidence is really the strand that runs through a lot of Rob's critique uh, of the stuff that, you know, that, that's bad and in investing. Uh, you know, humility is really important in this game. The second point, I think, and also remember, this is a point that um, kind of Stephen Pinker, Hans Rosling and other kind of, you know, rational optimists um, regularly make. Um, well, not Hans Rosling anymore, obviously, but um, that is that um, we ask media um, to cover events, not trends. Um, 
And this is a really important distinction if you think about it, because it's easier for something to go rapidly wrong than rapidly right, first point. But also if you think about it, um, there will always be enough bad or shocking um, news to f uh, in the world to fill um, you know, a 24-hour news coverage. You know, Long ago, we only really looked at the news extremely locally, um, and it was terrible. Now we can cast the net much wider to find all of that, um, that bad news. But happily, while that kind of... Um, it, it, nonetheless, none of that tells us anything which is the most important thing for investors about the long-term trends in things like, uh, let's say, you know, inter interstate violence. Um, now, happily, the long-term trend there, and this is more the, more the relevance to kind of the current story, the long-term trend there is incredibly positive. We have been getting much, much less likely to go to war over long, long periods of time. Uh, we are getting less violent as a species, uh, proportionally, in any single way you can imagine it. Now, that doesn't mean it has to continue in that direction, but that provides important context for these current sort of fears that on the cusp of you know a likely you know huge war or whatever else um, and so I think that's the, those are the sort of context points that I would rabbit on about again will manages to get in there a reference to to historic events again <laughs> <laughs> give it another go well I thought I could get away with it you two without Toby policing me <laughs> all right so so you're saying look um you know, thankfully right now as we speak things have de-escalated somewhat um but you know there there is always something somewhere um, and that whilst our net nature will be, we've got to do something, do something, action, action-oriented, um, you're saying, actually, no. Um, keep focused on the longer term. Your job as, as professional investors is to check and challenge your ideas. Um, Rob intervenes and um, headmasterly and keeps, uh, us honest, keeps yeah. you keeps you honest. Um, but but you know right now, what's what's the sort of key message out there to to our investor audience that are listening? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the way we invest, again, I would I would make the point that we would split. You know, the multi-asset class funds and portfolios that we uh, we run for clients into two sections. You know, one is your strategic asset allocation. Um, and this, you know, this is that exercise in investing humility we always talk about. We have a group of very clever people um, dedicated to kind of mathematically imagining hundreds of thousands of different um, kind of viable futures and finding the mix of assets, you know, stocks, bonds and countries and so on um, that best um, defends against the threats contained within these kind of viable futures. And of course, harnesses you know the potential opportunities out there. Now, events such as this, um, you know, such as the assassination of uh, Qasim uh, Soleimani, um, are best absorbed by this part of the kind of the fund of the portfolio. So, part of the diversification is some exposure to the oil price by a range of assets, actually. Um, for example, now the second part is the bit we've already mentioned. That's the tactical asset allocation. And this is where we make tweaks to that overall um, asset allocation, that overall fund and portfolio, in order to try and add performance here and there. Now, the point about this is, it is not a function of taking Taking positions everywhere and on everything you know every bit of news flow comes in you don't have to take a position it's really much more about trying to tilt the odds in your favor you are trying to take positions only when you think um, you can sufficiently slant those odds in your favor and to be honest that doesn't happen that often you know it can be five to ten times a year potentially that you find that opportunity in various asset markets all around the world I would say that this is not one of those opportunities because again we go back to the early points Rob and I've made and you made as well is that you know, it's humility, really. You know, you've really got to work out, you know, do I have an edge? 
is there something I know that nobody else knows? Is there something that we can, you know, really have an advantage in this situation? You know, when the main protagonists themselves don't know what comes next, be wary of those who would knowledgeably second guess them. So keep cool, sit on your hands. Keep cool. In this particular uh, arena. Good stuff. All right. Well, well, guys, thank you so much for, for, um, for your thoughts. Uh, join us again next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.